We're continuing our Christmas series that we started last week, which I've entitled Ugly Christmas Sweater Party. And if you weren't here last week, let me bring you up to speed because we looked at Genesis chapter 3. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles right now. We will be back there again. We looked last week at Genesis chapter 3 at that awful moment when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God by eating that fruit from the only forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. And we saw that God declared a curse on that talking snake, the devil. But we also saw that before God spoke of the consequences of their sin, he first gave Adam and Eve a promise. And the promise came in the context of his speech to the serpent. God told the snake that one of Eve's descendants would come and crush his head. So look again at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Hear the word of the promise-keeping God that we serve. God said to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So before God ever declared the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, he gave them a promise that one of their descendants would come and crush the head of the serpent that had deceived them. This was a promise pointing towards Jesus Christ. This is what scholars call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, the first mention of the gospel that we get in the Bible. And the Lord, in saying this, was letting Adam and Eve know that one of their descendants would come, and that person was Jesus Christ, that he would come and destroy the devil on the cross. And then after revealing the consequences of their sin, God slaughtered some innocent animals and used their skins to clothe Adam and Eve, who were naked before this. And this clothing with these animal skins is yet another picture of the gospel. God came to them in mercy and grace, and he covered their shame. He covered their guilt. And these animal skins, these ugly Christmas sweaters, if you will, gave them hope that God would indeed keep his promise. So that's what we saw last week. And as we begin again today, I'm going to read another portion out of comedian Jim Gaffigan's book, Dad is Fat. The title to the chapter I'm going to read from is called, Are You Done Yet? And it highlights the question that every couple with many kids gets asked all the time. Are you done yet? Are you done having kids yet? Here's what Jim Gaffigan says. Based on some reactions to hearing that I have five children, it seems as though people think I'm ignorant of the fact that having five children is a huge task. People will say instructively, five kids, that's a lot, as if they're educating me. Oh, really? I thought it was a small number of children. Wait, is one a smaller number than five or a larger number? I always get those two confused. Can I borrow your calculator? Well, Jim goes on to explain in the chapter how people reacted when they got pregnant with their fourth child, not even their fifth, but their fourth. He says, we were questioned as if we were curious oddities at a freak show. What's that like? I explained what it was like having a fourth kid very simply. 
Imagine you are drowning and then someone hands you a baby. Yeah, some of you will get that a little late. It's all right. He later goes on, now he says, he, he says to people when they ask him, he says, why, are you paying for their college tuition? Well, see, that just comes with the turf when you have a large family. You always have people throwing that question in your face, are you done yet? And in my experience with six kids, that question is usually followed by, are you Mormon? Or, are you Catholic? And sometimes they ask, do you watch the Duggar show on TLC? To which I replied, no, I don't watch the Duggars show. I watch The Walking Dead. And when there's a zombie apocalypse, I already have an army to help me fight off all the zombies. Good luck to you. Well, this is exactly the kind of thing that Adam and Eve would one day experience Because Genesis 5 tells us that they went on to have many more children. They would eventually get the question, are you done yet? Thrown in their face. But before they had many other kids, before they were looked at as that weird couple with a bunch of kids, and before one of their promised descendants would come and crush the head of the serpent, they would first have to have their first baby. Before they could be a large family, They had to have their first kid, and that was all new to them. So you can imagine how they reacted to God telling them that they would have a child. After they put on their ugly Christmas sweaters, those animal skins that God had made for them, perhaps Adam said this, and this is kind of the way I like to think it played out. Perhaps he said, let me get this straight, Lord. She's going to have a baby? What's a baby? Where does it come from? Wait, what, in there? In her stomach? One of us is going to be in there? For how long again? How does it come out again? I think I feel faint. I have to sit down. This is weird. And so perhaps as Adam is passed out, Eve asks God, we're going to have another one of us just like us? How does that work again? And exactly what do you mean by multiply your pain? But seriously, I want you to think this morning. Think about their fear. If you've just read through the Bible and never paused to think about the fear that they must have been experiencing. Think about the fear that Adam and Eve had as they had to leave the garden that day. Think about how Satan would have been accusing them and reminding them of their sin in eating that fruit. Think about how the devil would have thrown that sin in their face. Think about how the fact that there were only two Christians, only two believers on the planet at this point. Only two believers for Satan to come and whisper in their ear, I can't believe you've done that. Only two people that he could harass. Think about that for a minute. How he would throw that sin in their face. And doesn't Satan do this with you? He brings up your sin, all of your sin. He reminds you of all of your failures and tries to make you feel condemned. Well, think about what he must have been saying to Adam and Eve. 
I can't believe you did that. You disobeyed God. He sent you out of the garden, and now your life is going to be hell on earth because of your sin. Think about what you have done. And then think about how scared they would have been on that first night. Think about trying to get the earth to yield food. They had no shovels, no seed, no nothing. Would they starve to death? How would they build a shelter with no power tools? And think about how Eve felt during those first few months of pregnancy as she had to deal with morning sickness. She had no mom to come alongside her to help her. She didn't even have a copy of what to expect when you're expecting. She had nothing. How afraid they must have been. Their great failure would haunt them their whole lives. And what fear it would have brought. But they had a promise. They had a promise from God that came to them that they could cling to. And in time, they would learn what we need to be reminded of today. And it's this. It is impossible for God's steadfast love to be intimidated by your greatest fears or failures. It is impossible for God's steadfast love to be intimidated by your greatest fears or failures. Listen, greats, it's impossible for God's steadfast love to be intimidated by the things that we fear and the failures and the sins that we experience in our lives. Listen, God has been dealing with sinful people since Genesis chapter 3. So he's not phased by our fears and he is certainly not phased by our failures. In fact, God's promises are comfortable in our mess. His promises are comfortable right in the middle of the mess that we create. God's promises are comfortable plopping down in the middle of the ugly situations that we create. God's promises do not mind rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty. So God's love and his promises are not threatened or intimidated by all of our shortcomings. In fact, it is in the context of our greatest fears and failures that God's love goes on display. It is in the context of our greatest fears and our greatest failures that God's love then goes on display. And we see that most clearly at the cross. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What kind of world did God love? It was a world full of sinners, a world full of people wrecked by Adam's sin, a world full of people who all belong to one big messed up family. And it is in the midst of this giant, sin-wrecked, screwed-up family that God speaks a promise at the very beginning. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, God dropped a promise smack dab in the middle of the mess that they created. 
God threw a promise in their face. And what a promise it was. What a promise for Adam and Eve. Even as they had to deal with the consequences of their sin, what a wonderful promise. God would send one of Eve's offspring to crush the head of that no good, dirty, rotten, filthy, lying snake. One of her seed, one of her offspring would be born and he would be the great serpent crusher. Thank you. As Ian Campbell said, the first gospel word showed that the judgment of death was overtaken by the promise of life. It always is. The judgment of death was overtaken by the promise of life. It always is because God always has the last word. God's promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 would not be defeated by Adam and Eve's sin. Even the devil's sin would not thwart God's plan. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 8, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy and to crush the head of that talking serpent, that lying snake who has always been sinning since the beginning. And so Jesus is proof that in spite of how ugly things got because of Adam and Eve, God would still keep his promise. Jesus is proof that no matter how ugly and messy things get in our life, God's promise will prevail. And we even see this in what happened at the first ugly Christmas sweater party. What did Adam do after God gave the promise that one of their descendants would crush the serpent? What did he do after God clothed them in these animal skins, these ugly Christmas sweaters? Here's what happened. Adam gave Eve a name. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, I don't know what Adam called Eve before this. Maybe sweetie or love or bay or maybe woman. That's all that Eve is called before Adam named her. He just called her woman. Look at Genesis chapter 2, 21 to 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam wakes up from this dream and God introduces him to his new wife, a woman. And what does Adam say? He says, Woman, whoa, man, whoa, man. And so that's what Adam called her, woman. The Hebrew word is Isha. Maybe when Adam saw her for the first time, he said to the Lord, Is she for me? Isha, Isha for me, Lord? So before he called her Eve, Adam called her woman. Now, I know you ladies would not like to be called woman. 
Now, John Lennon wrote one of my favorite songs to Yoko Ono called Woman. It's on his Double Fantasy album. But I imagine most of the ladies here do not want their significant other referring to them as woman. If you refer to your wife as woman, men, I have a feeling you will be sleeping on the couch. There's a famous story in the Magnus family of one time we were in the garage at my grandfather's house working on this riding lawnmower, had it apart, and my grandmother sticks her head out of the kitchen into the garage, and she says, Ralph, touch the red wire to the green wire. And my grandfather looks at her, and he says, Woman, get in the kitchen and do something you know how to do. You don't want to do that, men. But remember, this is before the fall, before Adam and Eve rebelled against God. So there was no sin yet, so Adam could get away with calling Eve woman. But after they sinned, and after God told them that their offspring, one of their offspring would come and crush the head of Satan, that talking serpent, it is then that Adam calls her Eve. And Genesis 3.20 tells us why. Because she was the mother of all living. Now, you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says something like, Eve sounds like the Hebrew word for life giver, and it resembles the Hebrew word for living. In Hebrew, it's not Eve as we know it in English. In Hebrew, it's Hava. Maybe Adam was saying, I can't live without you. I need you. I gotta Hava you. You're my everything. I gotta have you. I gotta Hava you, perhaps. That's at least how I feel about my wife. I need her. So Eve goes from being called Isha to Hava, from woman to Eve. But what's interesting as you keep reading the Bible is that two times in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls his mom woman. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I always thought it was really weird that Jesus would call his mom woman. And he does it at the very beginning of his ministry, and he does it at the very end. In John chapter 2, Jesus' mother, Mary, asks him to perform a miracle and to turn some water into wine. So they're at this wedding. They run out of wine. Mary is freaking out and panicking. She's fearing for what's going to happen. And she comes to Jesus, and she's like, can you do something? Do that Jedi Knight Force thing that you do? And what did Jesus say to her? John chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Why does Jesus call her woman at his very first miracle? I mean, it's your mom, Jesus. Just call her mom or mommy or mama. But he does it again on the cross. Before he died, Jesus once again called Mary woman. In John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, he said to his mother, Woman, Behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, why does Jesus call his mom woman? At the beginning of his ministry, where he mentions his hour, his death on the cross, the reason he came, and then why as he hangs on the cross in that moment, that hour, 
Why does he call her woman again? It's hardly what a mom expects her son to call her. So why did Jesus do that? Here's why. In showing his glory in his first miracle at the wedding at Cana and mentioning his hour at that time, his death on the cross, and when he died on the cross, Jesus was making a statement. By calling his mother woman at these two events, these bookends of his life that mention his glorious death, Jesus was saying to his mother that he was the promised seed, the promised descendant of Eve, the promised seed and descendant of the woman. He was saying that he was the promised seed of the one, the woman of Eve, who had come to crush the head of the serpent. So when Jesus called his mother Mary, woman, two times, he was not being disrespectful. He wasn't being a jerk. He wasn't dishonoring his mother. He was actually providing her with comfort. He was comforting her heart. He was letting her know and letting John know, as he was also standing there with Mary, and who would later record these events in his gospel, he was letting Mary and John and then letting us know that he was the promised seed of the woman who had come to crush the serpent's head. Jesus was saying that in spite of the sin of Adam and Eve, in spite of their rebellion, God promised a redeemer and he was that promised redeemer. So when you hear Jesus call his mom woman two times in the gospel of John, you need to hear in that the echo of Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head. When you hear Jesus call his mother woman, you need to be reminded that it is impossible for God's steadfast love to be intimidated by your greatest fears or failures. Because that's exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was comforting his own mother as she watched her firstborn son dying a vicious, brutal death on the cross. He was comforting her and letting her know that even though this moment of great fear was breaking her heart, he was the promised seed of the woman. Imagine, think about the fear that's in Mary's heart as they begin nailing Jesus to the cross. He was letting her know in the moment of her greatest fear, he was the promised seed of the woman. As Mary watched her baby die on the cross. Her baby boy was comforting her and letting her know that he was the promised seed of Eve, the promised seed of the woman, and that it would be through his death that he would crush the head of Satan. That's good news if you are a human being born into this world and wrecked by Adam's sin, and you are. That's good news for me and for you. Well, there's another ugly Christmas sweater party that we need to look at, and it happened with Abraham and Sarah. The promised seed would come one day, and God reiterated that promise to Abraham, but then Abraham decided to take matters into his own hands. Remember what happened in Genesis chapter 15? Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, appeared to Abraham and promised him that his seed, his descendants, would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham was dumbfounded because he didn't have any kids yet. 
but he believed God's promise. And Genesis 15 says he was credited with righteousness. He believed God's promises that one day he would have many kids. He believed God's promise that one day he would have many kids and that one day he would have this question thrown in his face. Are you done yet, Abraham? In spite of his age and Sarah's age, in spite of Sarah's age and barrenness, one day people would say to Sarah, are you done yet? So Abraham believed God's promise. But then he took matters into his own hand. Instead of trusting in and waiting on God's promise, Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands. Sarah told Abraham to go be with her servant Hagar so that she could get pregnant and then they would have an heir through which God's promise could come true. And Abraham did it. He listened to his wife and boy did it cause drama. How did Abraham not figure out that this was going to end bad? I mean, what drama ensued, what a mess, what a dysfunctional family. I want a baby, I'm barren, God promised one, go sleep with my servant and let's get a baby. That's going to end bad. And so Sarah hated Hagar and ran her and the boy off. And so God appeared again to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17 and told them that Sarah would indeed get pregnant and that they would one day have a large family like the Duggars or the Magnuses. So now let's pause and I want you to think about this for a minute. Sarah was going to get pregnant as a very old lady. She was 90 years old. And if you were their neighbors back then, you would not have made the mistake that some men make when they ask a lady, are you pregnant? And they're not. Have you ever done that, men? Don't do that. That is the worst feeling that any human being can experience. Well, you would not have done that with Sarah because it was not even a possibility. She was 90 years old. Would you ever ask your grandma if she was pregnant? No way. So there's no way anybody was going to ask Sarah if she was pregnant because what 90-year-old woman gets pregnant? But causing a 90-year-old woman to get pregnant was nothing for God. In fact, the promise that he gave to Adam and Eve was what was behind Sarah getting pregnant. The promised seed of Eve would come from and through Abraham's family line. And because God promised it back in Genesis chapter 3, Sarah's pregnancy was already a done deal. In Genesis 17, after God told Abraham that Sarah would indeed get pregnant, Abraham laughed. Remember that? Abraham laughed. And then Sarah laughed. And then God came to her and he said, you laughed. And she said, no, I didn't. And how did God respond? Can you imagine laughing at something that the living God says to you is going to happen? Can you imagine laughing at God when he says this is going to happen? You're like, yeah, right. And so how did God respond to Sarah? I love this. He's so merciful. He just says, no, but you did laugh. That's all he says. Christ, do you understand how merciful he is to us when we sin? How merciful when we doubt his promises? How good he is to us when we create mess in our life because of our sin? He doesn't come to condemn us. He just comes and he speaks the truth and says, yes, you did it. I hope you are flabbergasted this morning at how good and merciful Jesus is. 
And so Abraham laughed and said, how, God? I'm 100 years old, and she's 90. Abraham doesn't even understand how it's even a possibility, but God tells him it's already a done deal. In Genesis 17, 19, it says this, God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. The Hebrew word here that gets translated as your wife in verse 17 is the Hebrew word isha, which means woman. It's the exact same word that Adam used of Eve before he gave her the name Eve. And the Hebrew phrase here that he says, your wife shall bear, it's a participle in the Hebrews, and it means that she's giving birth. She's bearing right now. In other words, it was already in the process of happening. But Sarah would not get pregnant for another three months, and then she would not give birth until one year later. So how can God say that Sarah was bearing a son right then? She wasn't even pregnant yet. Here's why God could use a Hebrew participle and say that Sarah was bearing a son right then, even though she was not pregnant and wouldn't be for three months and wouldn't actually give birth for another year. Here's why. Because God promised it. It was as good as done. And so I want you to imagine here. Can you imagine being 90 years old and giving birth? Don't you think that Sarah was scared to death? Am I even going to survive this pregnancy? I've seen girls in their teens and early 20s die giving birth. How in the world am I going to make it? I'm 90 years old. I'll be 91 by then, and every year counts at that point, I think. Well, once again, you have a very messy family situation with a lot of drama, and God drops his promise right into the middle of this mess. God shows up, and even though both Abraham and Sarah both laughed at God, he was merciful to them, and he still threw his promise in their face. He threw his promise right into the middle of their dysfunctional family. And this is what is so comforting about our God grace. God's promises are comfortable in our mess. They're at home in the mess that we create. God's promises are comfortable plopping down right into the middle of the ugly situations that we create in our lives. God's promises do not mind rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty. And this is exactly what you discover as you keep reading the Bible after Genesis 3, after the first ugly Christmas sweater party. When you fast forward not very far from creation, you see the seeds of an ugly, messy Christmas. The fall, the rebellion of Genesis 3, and then what follows after that? Adam and Eve have kids and one of them kills his brother and then God wipes out the entire world except for Noah and his family. And then Noah gets drunk right after this. I want you to imagine this. Think about this. Right after Noah witnesses God wipe out all of humanity with the flood, what does he go and do? He gets drunk. The only words that we have of Noah that are recorded in the Bible smell like alcohol. When Noah finally speaks in the story, his breath reeks of alcohol he might still be buzzing a little, and he's got a hangover. God's promises and his steadfast love are totally comfortable entering into our mess. Fast forward to the patriarchs. 
And you see a whole lot of mess in the book of Genesis. Then the nation of Israel messes up. They roam the wilderness for 40 years. And then in the book of Judges, you get that repeated refrain, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Have you read Judges 19 lately? Do you know what happens in Judges 19? A woman gets raped and then she dies and the man chops her body parts up into 12 pieces and puts them in 12 packages and then calls UPS and they pick them up and they ship her body parts all over Israel to say, look how messed up we are. Have you read Judges 19 lately? People say the Bible's boring. And then all the kings blow it big time. Saul, David, Solomon, and then the kings after them. And then you get to 2 Kings 11 where there is... One baby boy left of the promised royal line. Athaliah loses her mind. Crazy woman. Goes on a killing spree. Wipes out everyone in the royal family. Except there's one baby boy left that came from Eve's line and through Sarah. One boy left in the promised family line. And they have to hide him so that he's not killed. Think about that. All it, was, all it would take is one bout of pneumonia. And the promised line, the promised seed would not come. There was one baby boy left. How many diseases, how many sicknesses, how many accidents could have taken this kid out? How scared do you think the family was? Think about the fear that gripped the royal family line's heart. And yet God's promise to Eve would keep that baby boy alive until another baby would be born many years later. So for thousands of years, the people of Israel had been given promise after promise after promise. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, God had been promising to fulfill his plans to fix the mess that we created. And so here's the pattern that we see in the Bible and the pattern, if we're honest, that we see in our lives. Human failure meets divine promise. Our faithlessness meets his loyalty. Our great sins meet an even greater promise. And who wins when these two forces meet up? God does. God is not intimidated by our failures. He's not intimidated by our sin. He's not intimidated by our mess. He's not intimidated by our ugly Christmas sweater parties. In fact, Jesus loves to crash our ugly Christmas sweater parties. He loves to invade our mess. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, which were a part of our call to worship today and part of our scripture reading, we see how God's love and his promises are very comfortable in our mess. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, we don't justify ourselves. Who's going to bring a charge against those that God has declared righteous? Can we? Can Satan? No one. It's the living God who justifies sinners who trust in him. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love 
of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, you can add, or our sin, our mess, our dysfunctional family, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. No terrorist group, no political party, no government will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Not our failures, not our fears, not even our sins. Even though Satan is always throwing our sins in our faces, even our sins cannot keep us from God's love. Think about how Satan must have thrown Adam and Eve's sins in their faces. They were the only believers on the planet. He had no one else to harass, no one else to bother. Perhaps it was nonstop. Think about how Satan must have thrown Abraham and Sarah's sins in their faces. You slept with another woman who was not your wife just to get a baby? How could you? He promised you a son and you went and did that, Abraham? Sarah, come on. Think about how Satan does that to you. Think about how Satan will tell you that God's love for you must be diminishing because of all of your sin, because of all of your rebellion, because of the mess that you've created in your life and in your family. Think about that and then remind yourself that it is impossible for God's steadfast love to be intimidated by your greatest fears or failures. And then do what Martin Luther said. Luther was plagued by the constant reminders of his sin because the devil kept bringing them up to him. Luther was used to hearing about his fears, used to hearing about his failures from the devil. So he gave some seasoned pastoral advice to Jerome Weller, a young man who lived with Luther and his wife and for about eight years and actually tutored their kids. Well, in a letter written to Jerome Weller in July of 1530, listen to Luther's advice. He says, when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, the same thing he did with Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah and us, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. When the devil throws your sins up in your face, remind him that it is impossible for God's steadfast love to be intimidated by your greatest fears or failures. And remember that it is precisely our mess that is the raw material that God uses to bring about redemption. Your mess, the mess you create in your life and in your family, that's the raw material that God uses to bring about redemption. 
The all things of Romans 8.28 includes our mess, includes our sins, includes our fears, and includes our failures. Our family drama, our dysfunctional families are the raw material that God uses to bring about redemption and to work for our good and his glory. Please let me say that again. Your family drama, your dysfunctional family that's going to get together next week, that's the raw material that God uses to bring about redemption and to work for your good and for his glory. You see, Jesus specializes in joining family drama and bringing good out of it. Jesus is thrilled to enter your pain and to enter your mess and to enter your junk and to enter your ugly family situations and then to work in such a way that it will result in your good and the glory of his name. You can trust him for that. Your sin, your mess, your drama is no match for him. No match for his promises. Jesus is the redeemer and he specializes in redeeming awful situations. Trust him. Find a promise in his word and hang on for dear life and then preach it to yourself. Maybe you've blown it and you feel condemned. Romans 8.1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're scared. Psalm 25, 125. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Maybe you need help. I just came upon this promise this morning, was clinging. I was like, I need help preaching this sermon, God, because I stayed up too late watching a 13-second fight. Some of you know what that's about. I need your help to preach today. I'm tired. Psalm 34, 17, when the righteous call for help, the Lord hears. Help is the one prayer that I pray the most. I would lay in bed many times at night and just say, help, 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 because I don't even know what to pray anymore. Just help is all I have. Grab a promise in God's word, drag it down into your mess, and hang on like a pit bull, and then rest. And then rest knowing that even if you don't hang on to his promises, even if you doubt, even if you struggle to trust, even if you struggle to believe his promises, Jesus is going to redeem your mess anyway. That's the good news of the gospel, is that even though we're too tired to hang on to his promises, we, we doubt, we don't have faith, we struggle to believe his word, even in that moment, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is going to redeem your mess anyway. He's that good. He's that kind. He's that merciful. He's that sovereign. And as the song we're about to sing says, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Will you repent of your sin today and believe and trust in Jesus, the great redeemer? It's why he came. As the song continues, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, listen. Listen to what the angels are heralding. Glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Father, how merciful you are. We turn from you all the time. We laugh at your promises. And you don't come to condemn us. You just say, no, but you did laugh. God, how merciful you are. How kind and gracious to send your son to do what only he could do, to fully obey your law, 
to live a sinless life and then taking our punishment on the cross, bearing the curse of the law for lawbreakers like us, you raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at your right hand right now where he is interceding for us, praying for us because we're weak. We doubt. We don't have faith. What a savior. Glory to the newborn king in whose name we pray. Amen.